This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, August 5th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Facebook is cracking down on clickbait, and we'll tell you how. Mike, just tell us how. Don't tell us you'll tell us how. Okay, fair, fair enough, fair enough. Facebook knows clickbait is annoying, and they've put their fingers on the reason why. No, 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 no. just say it. Give me all the information in inverted pyramid form. Okay, this is my point. Sure, clickbait is bad, but to some extent, it's just structuring a sentence or building up some tension or I'll tell you what happened next. No, tell me what happened first or Facebook's going to descend upon me. Think of all the works of literature that might be undone if Facebook enforced its anti-clickbait strictures. Call me Ishmael. No, demoted, retitled, the whale wins. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Blah, blah, blah. You're wasting my times. Fine. They kill the one guy, but they think it's Charles Darnay. Maybe the only great novel it gets by the Facebook anti-clickbait thing is Gregor Samsa awoke one day to find that he had been transformed into a giant insect. Way to go, metamorphosis. So I've been reading what Facebook is targeting exactly when they say clickbait. They say, one, if the headline withholds information required to understand what the content of the article is. Okay, that is good. I agree with that. But how about this? If the headline exaggerates the article to create misleading expectations for the reader. For example, the headline, you'll never believe who tripped and fell on the red carpet. Well, is the reason it's misleading is that they pretend to know who I would not believe? Here's some people who I wouldn't believe tripped and fell on a red carpet. The Pope, Christopher Squire, the dead basis of yes, because he's dead. Simone Biles, because she's so agile. But really, if you see a headline, you won't believe who tripped and fell on the red carpet. How do you feel burned no matter who it turns out fell? You're clicking on something that promises you someone fell on a red carpet and this is worth your time. So Lindsay Lohan, if the answer is Lindsay Lohan, it's clickbait. But if the answer is Stocker Channing, it's legit. I don't understand. And then Facebook also rips into this construction. The headline, apples are actually bad for you, misleads the reader because apples are only bad for you if you eat too many a day. Again, I don't know if that's clickbait or just a missed opportunity for a really better headline. 12 apples a day keeps the doctor in business. Now that's a better headline. All right, you know what? I say Facebook is doing their job. The big problem with Facebook isn't clickbait. It's not that clogging up my feed. It's the stuff in my feed where no one's trying to trick me at all. My aunt is saying that her pug looks cute in a tutu, and there, right there, is a picture of her pug in a tutu. It's not, I won't believe who I put in a tutu, or you won't believe how cute your aunt's pug looks when we put a tutu on him. It's not that. They promised me the pug in a tutu. I get the pug in a tutu, and I'm poorer for it. 
And you know what I want to know? You know what I retreat to at these times as I search for sustenance and meaning? I want to know who the fuck tripped on the red carpet. On the show today, Brad Meltzer. He's been here before. He's a mystery novelist with a penchant for history. In fact, he talked about that on his old TV show, Decoded, and his current TV show, Lost History. And his new book is called House of Secrets. He co-wrote it with Todd Goldberg. Brad's a master of plot. Todd's a master of character. And that's some of the stuff we talked about. Benedict Arnold was the greatest traitor America has ever known. Or was he? Well, Benedict Arnold was a misunderstood figure whose true nature could reveal the secrets about ourselves. Or is that what they want you to believe? Benedict Arnold's Bible is a totem that just might hold the key to our society's darkest chapters. Or is that a convenient fiction meant to distract you from the truth? Look, I've read the book, House of Secrets, okay? I know Benedict Arnold is mentioned in it a lot. There's a Bible, there are murders, there are secrets that someone is willing to kill for to keep these secrets from being revealed. I guess we've got to bring in the author. Brad Meltzer has written The House of Secrets along with Todd Goldberg. There is Benedict Arnold, there is a Bible, and here is Brad Meltzer. Hello, Brad. Thanks for coming back. Three. How many people have you had back three times? I think in the, in fiction, you are the only three-time champion. Yeah, I want to. The thing is, everything's a contest, so uh-huh. I just want to know that I'm the winner of. And you can cut it down like supporting actor in a drama series who's right. born in April. On, yes. I'll take that victory. Yeah, Queens, I don't care. Queens. That's subdivision. right. It could be from Brooklyn originally, yes. Yes. while recorded in Brooklyn. I'll take yeah. that. I don't mind that, but I just want to know that I'm winning something. You are, and uh, the mysteries keep piling up. And I noticed this thing about this book. It's this name, Todd Goldberg. So two things that worried me. One is the fact that Todd is only spelled with one D. Maybe you can address that. Yeah. But the other thing, what, what's he doing here? Well, what's, here's you know, is he here's, watering down the Brad Meltzer brand. And that was the fear, right? Is like you know, they for years the publisher always wanted me to say, you know, can you do a co-written book? And I always said no because I was like, you know what, I don't want to do that because. And there are some great ones that are out there, but sometimes it is just exactly that, right? It's like some you know cheap way to kind of cash yeah. in. And the I fans always said worry no. about that. Yeah, and and listen, I worry Clancy. about that. I, I, I worry yeah. about that. And so they try, I finally had an idea. I went out to Hollywood and I said, I'm gonna, I have an idea for a TV show. It's going to be really good. And Hollywood said, no, nah, it's not that good. And I was like, are you kidding? This is a great idea. And once they told me no, I was really determined. Mm-hmm. So five years go by and I'm like, I'm going to write it. I don't care. I'm writing this thing. And I just physically, because I was doing my own other series of books, I didn't have the physical time. I said, if I don't do this book, it's never going to go. And so I said, rather, the publisher kept giving me all these, um, you know, really nice, terrific mystery writers. But I was like, I know how, I have the mystery. I have the plot. I know what I'm doing. I said, I, I'm going to do the opposite. And they said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to go hire a literary fiction guy. I'm going to hire an award-winning guy who does literary characters. And they warned me. They're like, this is either going to be really good or this is going to be a disaster, Brad. And I was like, you know what? I'd rather bet on someone that can do the character work. And I got the, I got plot up the wazoo here. Yeah. Fill so, in your gaps. That, and so, and sense. I said, you know, and I think, you know, for me it was, I have no ego. I want to do, I said, I want to do the thing that very few people can do, which is write a book that's better together than you either could have done alone. And while we were in the process of writing the book, Todd got nominated for like one of the books of the year. He lost to Stephen King. 
Um, and the publisher was like, who, who, who are you working with again? Who'd you hire? And I was like, I'm telling you, this guy is great. And I remember Todd really cracked the character open. He had this scene when you first meet Hazel, who's the main character. She's the kind of girl, when we meet her, she's six years old. She sits on her dad's lap at bedtime. And the dad tells her stories like this, that there was a, a body that was found in revolutionary times. And they cut the body open in the autopsy. And inside the body, stuffed in the chest, encased in wax, was a priceless book that belonged to Benedict Arnold. And she says, as a six-year-old girl, tell me another one. And he came up with the idea, and it's in chapter one of the book, that Hazel's the kind of girl who at six years old would burn her thumb on the stove and then would come back the next day and burn her thumb on purpose just to see what the difference in pain was. Yeah. And I was like, that's the character. There she is. And so we did this together. And the amazing part, I will say- of And all, also the fact that she played out the story on Paddington Bear- Yes, to make she it, did. To make the the hypothetical or the ethereal physical. Yeah, that also grounds she literally, it right. In she the literally when when, he, when she hears the story, yeah. she cugs, she goes to her bear <laughs> and she cuts open with a knife Paddington's bear. Takes away the you know the jacket, the rain slicker, cuts him open, stuffs something inside him, and freezes him to recreate the moment. You know this is a different kind of girl. She yeah. is truly what we call in the book the werewolf. She's a, she's not a normal girl. Um, and I said I want a strong female character. We all know Jason Bourne. We all know James Bond, but when it comes to the women who inhabit the thriller industry, there are some great ones out there. I felt like that's what needed attention. Um, and I really wanted to hopefully give some add to that part of things because I've seen enough male ones. And, um, and I said, can we create a character that's just as memorable, that is not a victim in any way? And I always, always teach my daughter, don't have anyone come save you. You can save yourself. And Hazel is this amazing character. She wakes up, chapter one, she wakes up in a hospital. She has no memory. Mm -hmm. And what happens is she's told that there's been an accident. Her It's killed her father, who's the host of a conspiracy TV show, who used to tell her these stories. And they tell her that the FBI, the last person that her father was seen with, has just shown up dead. And inside his chest, and she says, is a book that belonged to Benedict Arnold. And they're like, how do you know that? And she realized in that moment, all the stories her dad told her as a little girl they were true. But she also has this thing. That one reason she said it is she can't help herself from saying that because she can't not tell the truth. Or yes, she has to tell the truth. She's compelled to tell the truth due to things that happen. In well, she's brain. just, you know, I think for her, for her, she just, you know, it's a, she doesn't, she loses her emotional memory. So she right. loses her, she has, she knows all the facts, but she loses the people that she's connected to. So she can go into a bar and meet a guy and be attracted to him and doesn't know if that's her former husband or if it's her most hated enemy. And I thought I made that up. I was like, oh, that's a kind of cool thing to do. And, you know, everyone knows that, you know, amnesia doesn't really exist. So this is going to be a fun way to do it. And then this, uh, one of the head guys of, of brain surgery at, at Columbia said to me, no, no, this is real. And I was like, I made that up. He's like, you didn't make up anything. This is real. And now we had a character who has a second chance. And if, and if she figures out who killed her father, that she'll find out the truth about her father. She'll find out who she really was. And, and for me, the interesting part about Hazel is she finds guns in her house. She doesn't know where they came from. She finds scars on her body. She doesn't know how they got there. And she realizes the person that she was may have not been a good person. And this is her chance to reset her life, to figure out what happened to her dad, and to find out who she truly is. She's the mystery. So you have this is what you have in your mind. You have this woman, strong protagonist. She's the mystery. You have the outline of the plot. You know what kind of person she is. And Goldberg helps you with Well, Todd, no. I actually, what I had is I had the mystery. I didn't even have the memory part. Todd yeah. and I sat together, yeah. built it together. Then Todd, he wrote a full draft while talking with me. We obviously talked about what this chapter would be, what this chapter would be. He writes a full draft. I then went back and said, you know, what I love is Todd's character work. Now I got to make this book my kind of plotting. 
So I went and wrote and rewrote scenes that he worked on and kind of rewrote my own version. And when I was done with his version, I said to him, I don't know how you do what you do. Your character work is so incredible on that literary side. And, and I handed him my version of the book and he said to me, I don't know how you do what you do. I don't know how to do plot. He literally was like, I don't know. He, I, he had a scene toward the end of the book, like the penultimate scene that he wrote as a 30 page scene. And I said, Todd, you've got f- four different cliffhangers in this book. You can get all these chapters out of it. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, watch this. And I handed it to him. He's like, oh my gosh, you just made this read like a thriller. I didn't even realize it. I'm like, yeah, you don't even, he does, he does like in a strange way, like I need that help on that character work. And he, so meaning on that plot. You went, at that point, you said to Todd, you don't even realize there are things that you could, with just a little tweaking kind of blow up into a mystery that pay off. Well, we knew what the mystery pages. was, but yes. when it came the to the paying mystery, off, right, the main mystery. Strands. Right, and, and then so I would I would I would tease him. I would tease through them and I would, in in a strange way I would almost I was like threading through a carpet. Right. With a thread and needle and like redoing. And in a strange way we were like this literary peanut butter cup. Because maybe the most dramatic things, you know, as a dramatist, as someone who knows uh, drama and mystery and plot, that the most dramatic things aren't the things that are on their face dramatic. A little detail can be more revealing and more dramatic, but not be a gunshot that brings the cops. It's the Hitchcock quote. It's not the bang that's scary. It's yeah. the anticipation of it. Yeah. And for me, what I did is I did the one thing that I felt was most important is I threw my ego out the door. I said, I'm going to hire someone who can do what I can't do. And I will tell you that to this day, The House of Secrets may be my best reviewed book. Oh, good. And I think it's because people, you know, we really went for uh, something totally different. And I love that people went to it and said, you know what, uh, this is a character that you've never built before. And and it really is something that I couldn't do this book without him. And he couldn't do this book without me. And it, and I thought we were going to kill each other. And it really wasn't, it took far longer than we ever thought. I don't want to make it sound like it was easy. It took double the time of what we thought it was because I was like, I'm not putting anything out with my name on it unless it's great. It has to be better than the last book we put out. So uh, Hazel's the main character, but her dad is Jack Nash and he hosts this TV show that cracks mysteries you can say oh that's like the leonard nimoy show in search of and there is a spock shout out there a is there is a good one that show. Yes. you have to remember that and the title sequence with bigfoot looking in the distance but you host a tv show i host a where TV you show. crack mysteries so what is in the book if i were writing a book if okay let's not take me a skilled novelist were writing a book where they imagine someone who hosted a tv show of this type they would be able to come up with some believable details but is there a detail in the book that but for you actually host the show would not be in there. Yeah, no, there's, I mean, I feel like the book is filled with, I mean, and some of them were Todd taking apart my ass. One of my favorite lines in there is it says in the book, the key when you solve conspiracies for a living is that every once in a while you got to really solve one because then the audience gets antsy. Yeah. They don't believe you. And then one of two things happen. They believe everything's a conspiracy or they believe that you're full of crap. Right, because there's always that built-in conspiracy enthusiast right. nuts who call on the late night shows. That's right. But the re- the way for it to pay off is to say that not all conspiracy theories are only theories. So right, well, and, the, and, and the other thing is, is, you know, one of the things we do, and, and one of the one of the producers said it to me on the first season we did Dakota they said the less facts you have the more scary music you play on conspiracy shows <laughs> and I said I never want to be that show I never want to be doing that to our audience I never want to fear monger I want to tell the truth and give them what we and if, sometimes we got nothing and you say you got nothing this is all bullshit and sometimes you got something you got to say you know what this smells really bad in the world of conspiracy are there 
Benedict Arnold conspiracy theorists? Is that a thing? I think you're considered a Benedict Arnold if you kind of say, if you take the government side. So we did an episode on the Illuminati and we showed the two sides and one side that was like, you know, and we, and, and we, he just came off as a little kooky. I mean, it was very clear. We didn't have to do any of the work. We were just like, watch for yourself and tell us what you think. And I definitely got people who are like, oh, see, they got to you, Meltzer. Now you believe it too. And they're covering, and I, however, think, that if you go out there and say the government is always trying to get you, the government's always after you, it's just reckless. It's not just wrong, but it's reckless. Oh, yeah. Like, the government can't and be it, doing – the government can, can barely do what its re- regular job is. And it's one of my favorite lines in the book is it says, you know, to, to do a long-term conspiracy – People have to keep secrets and then they get prostate cancer and then they got to go retire. It's just, it's too much work. One of my favorite lines in the book is obsessions are inexplicable until they're shared, then they're culture. That's that's Todd Goldberg's line. That is one of my favorite lines in the whole book. And another, I don't have the exact line, but here's the idea that to understand the historical relevance of something, you have to understand the emotion. It's not a recitation of fact. She was talking yeah, about- Yeah, she's talking about- She's talking uh, about the FBI agent talking, who yeah. seems to know the facts, but doesn't but connect doesn't to the, the emotion. emotion of it. Yeah. And therefore, he doesn't really understand what he's talking about. And I said to myself, this must be a Meltzer creed. If yeah, I mean, and, and, and that's the thing is, you know, I think that, and you know me well enough to know that history is not a bunch of dates and facts you memorize. Um, and that's what we think it is. History is a selection process and it chooses every single one of us every single day. And the question is, do you hear the call? It's so easy to say, you know, Benedict Arnold's a bad guy. He's an evil guy. He's a, and that's what we do. Look at our candidates today, right? All they want to do is throw verbal punches at each other and make things easy. You know, one of the things when we were researching this book, I talked to this military intelligence officer and I was asking him, where, do you, where does the United States get its best information from? Like, where do we actually get it? Like, where does the best intelligence come from? And he told me this true story about a former dictator now who used to, through a top lieutenant, this dictator hated us, we hated him, enemy of the United States, but through a top lieutenant was secretly working for the United States, was secretly working for America. And why? For the most logical reason of all, for family. The lieutenant's kid was sick and needed the kind of medical attention that only the United States could give. So we gave him medical attention, and in return, the dictator would tell us um, financial investigations would help us with, keep munitions out of the hands of terrorists, and my source said, I love this quote, he said, he hated us through to his heart and his bones, but he helped us. And you realize that's the kind of question that crosses a president's desk, right? It is a new, it's not some black and white thing that you say good or bad. It's a nuanced moral question that tests who we are as a people. Do you see a greater good? If you could stop 9-11, as you put it to me, and you had to work with one of bin Laden's top lieutenants, would you do it? I would yeah. in a heartbeat, Right. But that's the kind of question that a president really deals with. And there's so much more nuance and emotional than you think that than we play out in the paper every day. Brad Meltzer, author with Todd Goldberg of The House of Secrets. Benedict Arnold, reconsidered. Bibles found in people's chests. Good stuff. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, brother. And now the spiel. Oh, out of the mouths of babes or tweens. Because yesterday at a rally in North Carolina, Republican vice presidential candidate Mike Pence took questions from the audience. And there, with his hand raised, was an 11-year-old named Matthew. And I've been watching the news lately, and, and I've been noticing that you've been kind of softening up on Mr. Trump's um, policies and words. Is this your role in the, is this going to be your role in the administration? What's your name, son? Matthew. Matthew. 
What did you say that I've been doing? Um, you've been kind of softening up on his words. <laughs> <laughs> and Pence gave a chuckle and a prediction that Matthew would one day be elected governor of North Carolina. Oh, great. Now an 11-year-old has to lure the NBA All-Star game back. But Pence answered him, and he gave a real answer and didn't take umbrage at the question, didn't dispute the premise. In fact, I'm going to say it was a lot less dismissive than I think Pence would have been with an adult questioner, certainly with an adult professional reporter questioner. We have seen this phenomenon before, but what I think we need to do if we want answers is to fan out and deploy the troops. So Kyla, Trevor, Asher, get ready. You're going to question the men and women who would be president. First up, Mrs. Clinton. Right here, this young man right there. Go ahead, because I really do love to call on kids because that's what this election is actually all about, is their future. Um, yes. Um, Mrs. Clinton, in giving you four Pinocchios, the Washington Post found fault with your assertion that the FBI director said you were truthful because what he really said was that there were some emails that were already classified that should never have been transmitted over a private server. So why can't you admit that? And is not being able to admit that a reason why you haven't had a proper press conference since 2015? Oh, that is really so sweet. (laughs) No, it's not sweet. I want an answer. All right. Next question. We're going to a Pence Trump rally. And uh, Trevor, just pretend your name's Jacob. These are usually the toughest questions. What, what's your name, son? What's your name? Yeah, it's J- Jacob. Jacob? Jacob Jingleheimer. Hey, Jake, go ahead. Well, Mr. Pence, you supported the war. And Mr. Trump, you say you opposed it. And Mr. Trump, you say you're the most pro-gay Republican ever to be the candidate. But Mr. Pence, you are ranked as the most anti-gay governor in America. And Mr. Trump, opposing the TPP is a, if not the signature stance of your campaign. Mr. Pence, you worked hard to pass it. And Mr. Pence, you once wrote an editorial saying cigarettes don't cause cancer. Mr. Trump, you don't drink. You don't even like to shake hands because it's disgusting. So my question is... Have you gentlemen ever actually talked about policy? Actually, I was only kidding. You can get the baby out of here. I'm not a baby. I'm 12. All right. The last question is for Tim Kaine. Excellent. Excellent, young Um, man. Hello. I'm a 10-year-old boy. Soy un niño de 10 años. And I want to know, what is my future like? How do I make my way in the world? Specifically, where is the library? Donde esta la biblioteca? Great question. Also, and if you could, please, por favor, not play the harmonica. No! No! Es muy malo! The one thing I... No! And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Mary Wilson. At long last, Miss Wilson, have you no shame? The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. What did you do with the money, Steve? The money your mom paid you to be executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. I want to know, do you kiss your mother with that mouth, Bowers? The gist. And coming this fall, Gist Jr., Popsicle Art, Pillow Forts, and Vexillology Corner. We're not dumbing it all down. Oom-peru-da-peru-do-peru, and thanks for listening.